I'm Dr. Matt Winia. And I'm producer Elizabeth Armstrong. From the University of Colorado's Center for Bioethics and Humanities and CU Boulder's Radio 1190 KVCU, this is Hard Call, the COVID Quandaries series. It's abended everyone's lives, a global pandemic. But America seems to have been especially unprepared for the severity of the novel coronavirus known as COVID-19. And old questions about ethics in healthcare, like who gets limited resources, such as organs or expensive new treatments, have taken on new meaning. Because the size of the COVID-19 outbreak in the U.S. has us facing these tough decisions on a much larger scale and under a great deal of uncertainty with less time for careful deliberation. It's a critical tool that saves lives, the ventilator, better known as a breathing machine. And American hospitals are concerned this morning that there aren't enough around to help patients who get sick with the coronavirus. But ventilators are not the only problem. Treatment, testing, PPE, staff, and beds are all in short supply as hospitals treat waves of patients suffering from COVID-19. When patients come into the hospital, medical teams are grappling with who gets priority. How do you allocate scarce resources when life and death might be on the line? These are the kinds of decisions we explore on Hard Call, where values, culture, ethics, and money often clash. Questions for which there may be no right answer, but where the stakes are high. What are you dealing with every day? People who can't breathe. It's as simple as that, they can't breathe. It's not just this machine that they talk about on TV that we don't have enough of. It's very complex, and if you don't set it up right, that patient outcome is different. You need skilled people who have lots of experience doing this to have good outcomes with these patients. So Matt, this is probably the first pandemic many Americans have been aware of in their lifetimes, but hasn't the medical community dealt with scarcity and disasters before? Yeah, and you know, ideas about how to handle severe shortages of healthcare resources, like during emergencies, really grew from experiences in the military, uh, on the battlefield. And with the notion of triage, um, which is a French word, it, it essentially means sorting something into categories. But ethically, the first thing to know about triage is that it is a forced choice. Um, some would even call it a, a Sophie's choice. So we really do everything possible to avoid it. And if it comes, triage decisions are forced on you um, because you have a potentially life-saving resource, but it's limited and not everyone who needs it is gonna be able to get it. And you have to decide who gets it and who doesn't. So in this pandemic, ventilators have been used as sort of the paradigm case where we could run out but as the news clips we just heard show, there are similar problems arising with medication shortages and shortages of beds or rooms, shortages of staff and so on. So how do you decide? Well, so this is the second sort of key ethical thing to know about triage is it tends to be pretty utilitarian. So save the most lives is almost always cited as the primary goal of triage. But I have to say, this is actually more controversial than it sounds. I've spoken to a lot of experts about this over the last few weeks, and not everyone even agrees with this basic thing, because after all, there are other values at stake, including things like maintaining social cohesion and trust in the healthcare system, 
and our ability to come together and heal as communities in the wake of the disaster. So if by saving the most lives during a disaster you destroy social trust, that would be a bad outcome. So there are other things that matter. Um, and some of these play out in the debates that are happening right now around, you know, how should triage protocols address the needs of people with disabilities? Should age come into play? What about underlying inequities in the healthcare system and so on? Um, so the second problem with this utilitarian goal of saving the most lives is it's really hard to know who will be most likely to benefit from a scarce resource. Our tools for making these judgments are okay, but they just aren't that accurate. Um, so a lot of people end up being tied uh, in terms of how likely we think they are to survive if, for example, they get on a ventilator. So obviously we can't tackle all these questions and issues about triage at once. So what's the hard call for today? Right, so today we're gonna focus on one specific question that virtually every policy on triage has had to grapple with. And that is, what about healthcare workers and first responders? What about the people putting their lives on the line to save others? P people who, if we could save them, they might get back in the fight and help save others. And, by the way, people who, if we don't promise to make some extra effort to help them, uh, might choose not to come to work. So that's, that's going to be our hard call today. If we were running short of critical care resources like ventilators, should healthcare workers get any type of priority in triage protocols? Okay, wait a minute. Even as you were asking the question, you actually made some arguments for giving healthcare workers priority. Have you made up your mind on this one? No. Um, for me, this is actually a legitimate hard call because I see good arguments on both sides. Um, but you're right. There are three basic arguments in favor. There's first the idea that healthcare workers, if you save them first, they can get back in the fight and save others. And then second is the idea of reciprocity. Um, people putting their lives on the line should get some special consideration. And finally is the idea that if healthcare workers don't know that they'll be cared for if they get sick, they might just decide to stay home from work. So what's the strongest argument you've heard? Well, um, let's start with this first reason um, that most people give when they talk about giving priority to healthcare workers. Um, it goes by various names. Some people call it instrumental value or narrow social utility um, or the multiplier effect. Uh, but the basic idea here is if your main goal for triage is to save more lives, then you should give priority to people who are out there saving lives. So. I like um, how Dr. Richard Demme, uh, an ethicist at Strong Memorial Hospital in New York, put this. Um, he calls this a forward-looking consideration. Instrumental value that is forward-looking, that says this person is a healthcare worker, they're gonna save more lives, um, we wanna put them on the ventilator so when they come off they can save more lives again. That's the classic military strategy for triage. Give preference to people who can get back in the fight. So do you think this applies in the pandemic like it might on a battlefield? You know, um, some people I talk to think it will and others think it won't. For, for example, I talked to Dr. Tia Powell, 
of Montefiore Medical Center in the Bronx. Uh, here's what she said. I think um, you could argue for enhanced access because you think um, if you give me access, I'll get back and I'll treat the troops. I don't think that's true. If you need a ventilator because of COVID-19, we're trying to save your life. The likelihood that you're gonna be back at work during the time of crisis is extremely small. So it isn't really classic triage where we get the troops back out on the battlefield. We won't get you back on the battlefield during this COVID pandemic. Maybe we'll save your life. And Dr. Armand Antamaria, a bioethicist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, he remembered a study of healthcare workers infected with the SARS virus back in 2003. So if you look at the um, data from SARS um, among healthcare workers that were infected, um, uh, one of the reports um, looked at the cohort of like 12 healthcare workers that were infected and required hospitalization within a single institution. None of them required mechanical ventilation. Um, their average hospital stay was two weeks um, at, at uh, an additional three-week follow-up, so five weeks total. Um, uh, they were still significantly symptomatic. Um, and, uh, and at some point in time, not specified after that, only one of them had returned to work part-time. We'll put the citation for this study on the website so you can see the details. But I have to say, not everyone thinks SARS is a good comparison for COVID, even though they're both coronaviruses. But I mean, for one thing, the mortality rate for SARS was almost 10%. And for COVID, it's probably well under 1%. And I spoke with Dr. Anuj Mehta. He's an ICU specialist. He helped Colorado develop uh, its state protocol, which does give a priority to healthcare workers and first responders. And he said the COVID pandemic is not the same as SARS because in the end, SARS came and went within a few months. We think this is going to be with us for a while. So we've already seen um, in multiple areas, healthcare workers that have been sick, um, recovered, and return to the uh, return to the healthcare field, and in some cases, that's actually been patients that have been on ventilators um, have already returned to the healthcare workforce. So, um, and their experiences are really valuable, and they go on to save other lives. So, to some extent, we won't really know how useful it is to direct critical care resources to healthcare workers for this pandemic until we know how long this pandemic is going to play out. But are you talking just about benefits for this pandemic? I mean, does it matter if the person being saved goes on to save lives only in this pandemic? Like, what if they get better eventually and then save lives in some other way, maybe years from now? Shouldn't that oh, count too? Man, so, I mean, you're right. Uh, Dr. Mehta raised this as well, but I have to say it quickly gets complicated because it's hard to say who should get this benefit if you start saying, well, what about people who might save lives later or in some other way? For example, I mean, what about hospital administrators? They keep the hospital running, so they help save lives that way. Should they get priority? Um, or what about other types of doctors, hand surgeons, orthopedic surgeons, um, palliative care doctors? They aren't so much saving lives right now but maybe some or all of them should get priority too as healthcare workers because of you know the good they do in general. But now you're getting awfully close to making judgments about general social value and you're getting away from the idea of narrow social utility or this, you know, the immediate multiplier effect. 
I see. So we're kind of walking a fine line here of assessing how someone can help during a pandemic with making judgments about their worth to society. And that could translate into all sorts of areas we just don't want to go. Like, do you say the single mom or the CEO who employs thousands or uh, the person with a criminal background? It, it It could end up being a little bit messy. Um, does the second reason, you called it reciprocity, shed any light on how we might kind of keep this moving forward? You know, actually, before we go straight to reciprocity, I want to say one other issue came up in talking about this multiplier effect idea. Um, and this, this is a pretty controversial question to ask, but it comes up in these discussions. So let's say we all agree everyone working in a hospital, say, is involved in saving lives surgeons, housekeepers, food service workers, respiratory therapists, everyone. They all help save lives, so maybe they all get priority. But if you're gonna really be utilitarian about this, you have to admit some of these people would be easier to replace as workers, not as human beings, but as workers, they're easier to replace as other than others. So, I mean, it, it takes more time and resources to train a new critical care nurse than it would to train a new cafeteria worker. And the question is, should that matter? I mean, if we take the idea seriously that every human being has equal moral worth, then no, it shouldn't matter. If they're putting their lives on the line by coming to work and they're helping to save lives, then they should be treated the same. Okay, so now we are getting into the second argument for this, which is reciprocity. And if, as Dr. Demi put it, the multiplier effect is a forward-looking reason, reciprocity is a backward-looking reason. Basically, you did something good, and now you get rewarded for that. So people who put their lives on the line by caring for patients with COVID, they should get a leg up in the triage protocol. So I can only imagine, if it's hard to decide who might help save lives if they get better, it must be really hard to decide who has put their life on the line during this pandemic. In some ways, it feels like almost all of us are doing that. Exactly, and this is the major objection to the idea of reciprocity is operationalizing it. Almost everyone likes the idea of honoring those who've made a sacrifice, but who exactly should get this benefit? only doctors and nurses? What about EMS workers? What about housekeeping staff? Or for that matter, what about people in meat processing plants who we know are also at high risk of catching this, but they're going to work anyway and helping all of us? And what about bus drivers and grocery store workers? And pretty soon you're looking at a very large group of people. And if the group that gets this um, special priority is that large, then it's not really a special consideration anymore. I also wonder if the idea is to give this benefit to people who took a risk in going to work and got sick as a result. How would you know that someone caught COVID at work and maybe not while they were at the grocery store or out at a bar? Right, that's, that's another way in which it's hard to operationalize the idea of reciprocity. How do you apply it only where it's, well, shall we say, deserved? Um, And I heard several other reasons, both for and against this idea of reciprocity. Such as? Well, for example, I heard a really interesting angle on this from Tyler Gibb. He's a bioethicist at Western Michigan University. He's worried that giving workers any special priority in terms of triage 
could actually undermine the altruism that is foundational to healthcare ethics. Basically, he says, if you start treating this like a transaction, it could undermine professional morale. That feels a little bit abstract, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, so there is some research from behavioral economics on this um, that suggests using explicit, tangible incentives to get someone to do something can sometimes undermine the implicit and less tangible incentives that are already causing them to do that thing, like their notion of honor or altruism or virtue. So uh, Dr. Gibb is saying basically, rather than giving people a leg up in triage protocols, we should honor healthcare workers in other ways, like with expressions of public gratitude, as we hear people doing each night in many cities now. Okay, making noise at 8 p.m. is really nice. I've been doing it too. But I have to say, it's not the same as having your life saved <laughs> if you get COVID-19. Well, I heard a, r a related idea, which is, wouldn't it be better if instead of honoring these people, um, even by giving them priority in triage, wouldn't it be better if we honored them by giving them better protective equipment so they wouldn't be taking such a risk in the first place? It sounds great, but we seem to have these chronic PPE shortages. Isn't it a little late for that? Exactly, and I talked to John Carney at the Center for Practical Bioethics. He's in favor of giving some special status to healthcare workers, and he turned this argument back on me. I think we make a pledge to the people that will protect them, and we, we didn't keep that pledge from the get-go. So he said, yes, we should have provided adequate PPE to healthcare workers, and the fact that we didn't is the reason to give them priority if they get sick, sort of as compensation. Okay, but if that's the case, then we probably owe this special attention to lots of people outside of healthcare who also didn't get the protection they deserved, which is back to the problem of how do we operationalize this? Right. So, so another idea for how to honor people who are taking on extra risk rather than promising um, extra points in the triage protocol, how about paying people hazard pay? Giving them a good death benefit to their family if they get sick and die. After all, death benefits and hazard pay are, th those are the traditional ways of getting people to take on dangerous jobs. But when I brought this up, not everyone thinks it would work. I talked to Tia Powell, who is a psychiatrist, and she said for people with COVID, they're trying not to die. The death benefit, cold comfort. Um, yeah. So I think, um, you know, as with the issues around motivation and deterrence, those are empirical questions. You can ask people, would you be comforted? Would you be more likely to come in if we said we'd take care of your survivors? I think it's, as a psychiatrist, I find it unlikely. So that's an open question also. Yeah. So here's another idea I heard in favor of giving healthcare workers priority. It's basically, what's the alternative? I mean, if, if you can't give some group priority, how do you make decisions when a lot of people all need something equally, but only a few can get it? And the traditional answer to this type of problem, in, in ethics at least, is to use a lottery. So it's random allocation. But many of the people I spoke with are pretty convinced 
people really hate the idea of a lottery. Oh, yeah. Random chance to decide who lives and then who dies. Right, right. And I mean, I hate to say this, but even a lottery can end up becoming biased. Dr. Richard Demme told me he's been studying shipwrecks as examples of when people in real life have had to make really heart-wrenching triage decisions. Uh, who was going to get eaten, right? It was a common thing that used to happen when we didn't have uh, power engines and, and that we required wind to blow you somewhere. If the winds didn't blow for a month, you sat in the South Pacific and uh, ran out of food. And uh, there are actually a number of interesting uh, shipwrecks where soldiers had to decide who they were going to eat. And um, typically they would draw lots. But of the stories that I've read, <laughs> the majority of the stories, it appeared that there was fudging of the lottery. That, that uh, oh gosh, it always seemed to be the, the black man who got eaten first or the, the youngest who couldn't fight and couldn't resist that I got eaten first. It's interesting because Demi is against giving healthcare workers any special status. But this idea that even a lottery could end up being biased was also raised by people arguing in favor. So, for example, Anuj Mehta said he thought health workers might get priority no matter what because it would be so traumatic for people in an ICU to not give critical care to one of their colleagues. He told me about a friend of his that illustrates this. He's a nurse practitioner um, who works in a, a very busy intensive care unit in um, in uh, in New Jersey, obviously one of the most hard hit um, states. And she had two colleagues that were on ventilators at one point. Um, and she said she, when this was over, she didn't want to necessarily go back to practicing medicine. And um, it was kind of really sad for me to hear because I think she's really good at what she does. She's very passionate. She is one of those people that you hope takes care of your family member if they ever got sick. Um, and I think she, you know, that was early on in the pandemic. I think she's kind of swung the other way now. She's, you know, she, I don't think she wants to leave. She's obviously still very committed. But I think if she was faced with this idea of not being able to give her colleagues who were in the, working in the ICU some preference, if they died because they didn't get a resource that was potentially available and was triaged to somebody else, I think we'll lose healthcare workers and potentially more lives will be lost in the future. So he's basically tying the issue of reciprocity back to the issue of social utility, saying that if we fail to give some preference to healthcare workers, they would leave the field. Yeah, and this gets us to the third major argument um, in favor of giving priority to health workers, which is that if you don't, they might not show up for work. And this is really interesting because it's related to human psychology and disasters. And there's just a lot of hypothesizing and not much real data on this. It does seem like all I hear about right now in the news are doctors and nurses being so heroic and showing up for work in the face of this tremendous risk. True, true. Uh, but there are also some stories of doctors and nurses choosing to stay home or to flee the area when prior plagues have hit. Um, that was true certainly for the great plagues of the Middle Ages. Uh, it was also true for SARS. Um, and I expect we will hear some of these stories again for COVID. 
Um, and the bottom line is we just don't know whether telling healthcare workers they'll get special access to care if they get sick, whether that would make any difference. Um, for example, I heard a completely opposing view to this from Dr. Neka Sederstrom from Children's Hospital in Minneapolis. Every clinician that I've talked to has replied that the idea of being put ahead of some other patient for a resource gives them the heebie-jeebies, right? Like, there's this characterologic requirement to go into this field that I think people just innately have that makes them uncomfortable with the idea of, of their job as clinicians providing some benefit to get more care than the people that they signed up to take care of. There's some just ickiness around taking away a resource from a patient for myself that just doesn't seem to, to vibe with people who chose this profession. And I think there's something to that. I mean, every, including older clinicians that have retired have felt, they've said things like, if it's, if I have to get on the vent, I don't do it because I want you to take care of that patient. Like, why would I, as the doctor, get the vent? No, 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 no. My job is to care for people. My job is not to take a, like a treatment or some sort of care plan away from people. I am the servant of the people. That's mm -hmm. what I chose to do. As someone who fully believes that this is my calling, I feel extremely uncomfortable at the idea of me being prioritized over someone else just because I chose to go into this profession. I also heard a lot of worry from both supporters and opponents about the conflict of interest inherent in healthcare workers putting together a triage protocol that gives some preference to healthcare workers. Um, and that doing this could undermine public trust, but I'd say the bottom line is we don't know much about how healthcare workers think about this, and it's possible Dr. Sederstrom and Meta are both right. It could be people are honestly divided on this or they just aren't sure. Uh, I did some research on this question earlier in my career around SARS, and our findings were actually mixed. A lot of people said they would show up for work even if there were a pandemic, but the more dangerous we made the pandemic in the survey, fewer and fewer people said they would be willing to show up and keep working. So what does the public think about giving healthcare workers priority in triage? Did you find uh, any public polling on this question? Very little. We, we really don't know much about how the public thinks about giving priority to healthcare workers. And I heard sharply diverging views on this from experts. Some think it's obvious the public supports it. Others say it's obvious the public doesn't. We'll put some resources about the work that's been done on public opinion about triage on the website, but the bottom line is it's pretty uncertain. I would think that getting some clarity on this could be really important. If a main purpose of having a triage protocol is to maintain public trust. If we ever do have to do the triage, then it's pretty important to have a system that the public agrees upon. Yeah, and one thing to say about that is this is probably one of those types of issues where you can't get really good results by just asking people about it out of the blue in a regular survey. The issue is just too complicated. Um, people need some time to really think it over before they vote, which, by the way, is what makes it such a terrific question for hard call. So let me just um, repeat the hard call question now that you've heard some arguments for and against. 
if you were developing a triage protocol for your state or for your hospital, what would you do? Should healthcare workers get any type of priority in triage protocols if we were running short of critical care resources like ventilators? Please go onto the website and vote, or you can follow us on Twitter at HardCallShow, and you can vote there as well. And of course, you can always tell us why you chose to vote as you did. Today's Hard Call Show was produced by Jared Brausch, with reporting by Malia Himber, Elizabeth Armstrong, and me, Matt Winia. Thanks to all of the bioethicists we interviewed, and apologies, we didn't get to use a quote in the show from everyone we spoke with. Okay, before we go, if you've enjoyed this episode of Hard Call, I'd like to ask you a favor. What, one? Can we, can we make that three favors? I have three favors. Okay, I know favor number one. Please subscribe to Hard Call on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Having more subscribers moves us up in the list of recommended podcasts. Okay, what's the favor you want to ask, Matt? Okay, my, well, so favor number two, please tell a friend to listen. Better yet, tell a whole bunch of friends to listen because the, the number one way people are discovering Hard Call is by hearing about it from someone they know. Okay, I bet I know what favor number three is. Please leave us a review. Right, right. Having more reviews, just like having more subscribers, actually makes a huge difference in how Hard Call Show shows up on the various services. On the next episode of COVID Quandaries from Hard Call, Justice is about getting what you're due, <laughs> what you're owed. And there's vast disagreements about what we owe each other. Does the punishment fit the crime, right? That there is some sort of, of fairness, um, proportionality, what is a fair? I mean, there is no um, definitive answer to that. And that is an environment where people do not have the opportunity to engage in some of the public health strategies around masking and hygiene and social distancing. They didn't get rehabilitated enough. They didn't get off the street for long enough. Because if you don't have a good answer for those, then why are you doing it in the first place?